I'm Christy Balsells. I'm the Executive Director of Mito Action. Today is Friday, February 6, 2009, and our topic today is autism and mitochondrial disease and taking a look at how much we really know. Our guest speaker today to lead us in this discussion is Dr. David Holtzman, who joins us from Massachusetts General Hospital. And Dr. Holtzman has a personal interest and has some research background in this particular topic and has also been involved with mitochondrial disease patients for some time as well. So brings a unique perspective, I think. Sorry about that. I'm going to mute everyone's line so we don't have any more feedback like that. Bear with me one second. Okay, hopefully you can all still hear me. And so Dr. Holtzman joins us today with a unique perspective from both of those backgrounds. So, David, if you'll go ahead and introduce yourself a little further and also just tell us a little bit about why you have some interest in this topic, and then we'll go ahead and move to actually discussing autism and mitochondrial disease itself. Uh, hello, it's my pleasure to uh, join you today. Um, I don't know that my experience or perspective is unique, but I have been a pediatric neurologist for many a year, uh, and as Christy said, I have done research uh, in mitochondrial physiology, and most recently this research has turned toward uh, some questions about evidence for abnormal mitochondrial function uh, related to autism. So, uh, unfortunately, these are both very complex questions. The question of autism uh, and the enormous amount of literature trying to investigate its causes and its characteristics as which can also be said, I think, for the mitochondrial uh, disease world, much newer, uh, but with the same uncertainties of definition and understanding of its, the causes um, and the steps in between uh, mutations in the mitochondrial or the nuclear genes and it, the expressions which may or may not be present but which we call mitochondrial disease. So uh, I, I wanted to keep or I, if I assume there are many questions because I certainly have many questions. So I'm going to keep my comments, my introductory comments, as short as I can. Uh, first, I would like to just briefly address the question of any role vaccines may cause uh, in autism. And I, you must understand that the evidence uh, that um, I think just about all scientists and clinicians uh, used to make these kinds of judgments 
doesn't exist. There is no demonstrated relationship of vaccinations and autism, even in the presence of mitochondrial abnormalities. And without such evidence, to compromise the protective effects of vaccinations for your children uh, is a very, very serious decision. Uh, and one that I frequently discourage families from uh, using, from instituting. Uh, the, there is a great deal of publicity, but the actual scientific evidence is zero. Uh, secondly, the whole relationship of mitochondrial abnormalities or mitochondrial functional differences in the autistic population and uh, in the general population uh, is very complex. There, it's long been recognized that there are some patients with what are now recognized as mitochondrial cytopathies, abnormalities in the functions of cells related to abnormalities in the mitochondrial genome or the nuclear genome, which affect the functions of mitochondria, but particularly in relationship to generating the cellular energy that's required for function particularly in the brain. Uh, these are individual cases or small groups of cases, uh, not a large number, compared to the very large number of patients with the diagnosis of autistic spectrum disorder uh, and the growing numbers of uh, patients with mitochondrial cytopathies. Uh, secondly, there have been some studies of populations, relatively few such studies, but which suggest that a surprisingly large number of patients with the diagnosis of autism or one of its variants so the autistic spectrum uh, will have abnormalities in lactic acid uh, or in pyruvic acid, which are markers of some disorder of energetics, uh, a mitochondrial function. Uh, and most recently, uh, including from my own laboratory, there have been uh, studies of uh, abnormalities in either the uh, mitochondrially correlated genes or in mitochondrial functions tested uh, in cells or directly in mitochondria. Uh, 
again in relationship to some presumed or definite relationship to autism. Uh, it's going to be a lot of work. There will be a lot of work required to understand what the connections are, what the role of these uh, changes in mitochondrial function in cells in autistic patients might have to the cause of autism. Uh, there's a lot of speculation, and speculation is uh, not difficult to come by, but it isn't necessarily uh, the relationship to disease cause that we are all looking for. Uh, I can point to you that I'm holding on my lap, actually, uh, a, an article that has just appeared in the literature, uh, which I skimmed through early this morning, and uh, I don't yet understand it. I may not actually get to the point where I understand it, but I'll continue trying. Uh, and the title of it is Nuclear and Mitochondrial Genome Defects in Autisms. And this was uh, in the New York Academy of Sciences symposium entitled The Year in Human and Medical Genetics. So it is literally hot off the press. Uh, it's an article by scientists from uh, the Department of Pediatrics at the University of California at Irvine, which uh, is a center that has both a large program in autism research and a very large and active program in mitochondrial uh, genetics and physiology and expression in disease. So these groups uh, clearly are now working together and may provide us some answers. Uh, so maybe next year I can speak more to the point of the, the, this question. Anyway, I would now, I think, Rekki could be happy to uh, have questions from you. And I will be as direct as I can uh, to tell you whether or not I can answer them. So thank you for that, Dr. Holtzman. And I'm going to go ahead and start before we open all the lines with a couple questions that had come through um, to me directly, and then we'll open the floor for additional questions. So one article that was published in November 2008 um, with Dr. Bowman as well as Dr. Cohen, Dr. Bowman is, is at part of the latter's program at Massachusetts General, that was a cohort analysis, meaning they retrospectively looked at a group of 25 patients who um, had features of ASD and then some additional features that were not consistent with autism. And there's some statements in the discussion that say that there could potentially might not be a difference between 
the physiologic stress of vaccinations and that of common childhood diseases, and that those are all considered known precipitants of mitochondrial regression. And, and that statement alone, I think, strikes fear in the families who um, have children with autism and who have children with mitochondrial disease. Would you comment about that? I think I would have to put that statement uh, into the area of speculation. We all worry about effects of disease, effects of toxins, effects of uh, even potential treatments or treatments that we use. Uh, many of those treatments you know, of the drugs we use uh, ha do have toxic side effects without question. But it's very important for us, particularly under conditions like the use of medicines, the use of vaccines, for us to be able to do a study or do a series of studies that very directly compare the incidence of a particular outcome, like autism, uh, with exposure to what whichever of the variables we choose. Uh, and as I said, there's no evidence from such studies uh, done either when certain potential toxic agents like thimerosal, which was used as a preservative in the earlier vaccines and contains mercury, when that was eliminated, there was no decrease and maybe even a coincident uh, increase in the incidence of autism over those years after thimerosal was eliminated. So a potential toxin that uh, in certainly the, the non-technical press uh, was given lots of play as a cause, a likely cause, and even a certain cause of autism turned out not to be correct. Now, again, some children were kept away from the vaccinations, or the vaccinations kept away from the children. Uh, and there were outbreaks of some of the infectious diseases that could have been prevented by those vaccinations. So, for the sake of a speculative relationship, a speculative cause of an outcome like autism, there was exposure and an increased incidence of infections which we know full well have very high incidence of neurologic abnormalities, uh, often more devastating than autism. So I guess the second part of that question is, do you feel like then there's an urgency for larger population-based studies to really try to identify 
who has autism, who has mitochondrial disease, and what is the actual relationship. Um, because the, the research that has been done to date has been on very small groups. Well, urgency is a, is a difficult concept because many groups feel there is an urgency to understand some diseases, certain diseases. Uh, and yes, there's certainly suggestion from the existing studies that it would be fruitful to understand a relationship between mitochondrial abnormalities and autism. Uh, and to do this carefully, uh, certainly not to give up you know, uh, being as careful and as rigorous as possible uh, for the sake of urgency. Uh, there are lots of groups fighting for very scarce research dollars, particularly uh, in these economic times. But hopefully, both from the federal government and from private foundations, there will be funding for studies careful studies to be done over the next five years, ten years, to try to answer this question. Okay, thank you. And I expect there might be some additional follow-up from our group on the same topic, but I'm going to go ahead and ask the one other question that I had already in queue, and then we'll open the lines for additional questions. And, and I also want to preface Dr. Holtzman by saying we appreciate your candor because we know that there are no um, right or wrong answers at this time. It's just really a topic that I think is um, emotional for a lot of parents who see their children affected, and we feel the urgency that it's very important. A second question is related to the energy demand that um, happens with mitochondrial disease. Parents of kids with mito know that pacing a child's day, you know, treating activities like you have a four bars of battery and you really need to make sure that the way that you use that battery is really for the best good of the child in a school day, for example. So we've learned to structure that, but then I think for the community of children with autism, that's a different component to be able to incorporate and perhaps has a different impact. Do you feel like there is... Um, a good way to describe when parents are advocating for their children the impact that the energy demand has from mitochondrial disease for their children who have autism. Wow. <laughs> That's a very tough series of questions. Excuse me. The... Um, I can add to the uh, unknowns and the uncertainties in mitochondrial disease, in autism, the research that's being done and the complexities of energetics and brain. Um, my sense as a parent uh, 
is that, you know, one tries different things under different stresses, and you do what works. I don't think there are any formulas that I could give or that anyone else could give prospectively for a group of children who uh, have mitochondrial functional abnormalities and have uh, behaviors that are characteristic in the autistic spectrum. Um, again, I think you know, there are a lot of efforts going on to help both populations of children and those children with expression of both abnormalities uh, in the same child. Uh, this is very difficult and you know, one does what seems to work best uh, educationally, socially, uh, and in the long-term learning functions. So I'll follow up to that to actually share with the group that if you are from the autism community and are trying to explain some of the invisible consequences of the need for managing energy output in mitochondrial disease, we have a new video on our website that's um, targeted at school-age kids and explaining some just a few of the key aspects of what's really important when modifying their day or modifying your approach with them. You can watch it on the website. You can also request a free copy from the website. So it's called Energy for Education. So, But I, I think it's a reasonable question because I think I find parents in a situation that they're having to explain now. It's one thing to explain an invisible mitochondrial disorder where child looks good on day one and terrible on day two, and then I think to add the component and complexity of autism on top of that is really challenging. So I'm going to unmute everyone. is an understatement. I'd agree with that. I would wholeheartedly agree with that. I'm going to unmute the lines because I'm sure we have lots of questions. The way this will work is we just, again, we're just in a respectful room together and we'll just take turns. So when you ask a question, if you'll introduce yourself and then ask the question and if needed, I can help clarify and I'm sure Dr. Holtzman will do his best. So bear with me one second. I'm going to unmute everyone and then we'll jump right in. Okay, so now we should all be able to ask additional questions. So who would like to ask the first question? Chris, Christy, this is uh, Bob Krakow. Hi, Bob. Uh, can you hear me? Hi. Thank you. Uh, um, thank you for uh, holding this uh, uh, phone conference. And Dr. Holtzman, thank you for being available to answer our questions. Um, I have really two-part question related to the issue of whether or not there is evidence, one way or another, associating vaccines with regression and mitochondrial regression in So one is sort of a micro question, uh, specific, and one is more general. And let's go to the specific one first because it relates to my experience. And let me make a full disclosure before I ask the question. 
I have a son who's nine years old, who regressed for two years old, after, right after a flu shot, within days. Uh, he's diagnosed with autism two years later by the leading pediatric neurologist in the world. We asked about mitochondrial dysfunction, just because we asked about everything, and we saw some similarities. Five years later, he was confirmed to have complex one and subunits of complex two and four mitochondrial disease through a fresh muscle biopsy by one of the three leading uh, researchers who conduct such, such testing. So that's what my experience is. And so my first question is, I know that that is not in the category of scientific evidence, but to me, uh, it seems to me that that is some indication that something's going on here that we have, and I'm not the only one, you hear these stories repeatedly, and in the interest of full disclosure, in my law practice, where I represent more than 120 families with vaccine injury claims, um, when we look, we see the same pattern in mitochondrial diseases being diagnosed in multiple cases. There are about 20 to 30 now in my caseload alone, where the original diagnosis was autism. Um, and coupled with that, there is a published case study very famous one now, uh, involving polling, which comes to the same conclusion, regression after vaccination within days or, and, and weeks, and subs uh, diagnosis subsequently of autism, and then ultimately diagnosis of mitochondrial disease. Doesn't that constitute some evidence, especially the published case study, that we have to deal with rather than simply say, there's no evidence whatsoever. And I can go to my part two, but maybe you want to address that first. Well, it seems to me to say there's no evidence is sort of, it's not addressing the issue. There, there is something going on here. I understand you put it in the context of scientific evidence, and that's a very well-defined category, but, but we're, we're not talking here as a group of scientists. We're here as parents. Uh, yes. Uh, It's, you have had the difficult experience of raising a child who has now two, two defined abnormalities. But when we look at the large number of children with autism, we see within that population relatively small numbers of comparatively unusual diseases, most of which are metabolic or chemical diseases. Some of those diseases are will have very high incidence, 50, 60, 70, 80, or even 100% will have characteristics of the autistic spectrum. Some, like the mitochondrial cytopathies, will have, now when people have put together the, the published uh, documented cases, the incidence perhaps is 
3% or 4% of those children will have autistic behavior. Now, the dis metabolic disorders, and particularly one could argue, a disorder that affects energetics puts the brain at high risk. Uh, a number of these other metabolic abnormalities may indirectly affect energetics, but certainly in a broad way affect function. And they seem to put the brain at even higher risk for this particular disorder, which, by the way, is also, and as I'm sure you're well aware, uh, a very poorly defined one. Um, so, yes, as parents, you are very understandably concerned about your child, and in some cases your children, who could have both of these disorders. And there are certainly such families. But we still have to rely on the painstakingly difficult information that is obtained with some quantitative objectivity that we call the scientific method. Uh, um, anecdotes, you know, individual stories, don't establish cause. In particularly in medical issues. Which, think, which leads me to the second part of the question is, um, I know of no study that has in the methodical, uh, systematic, quantifiable way you describe that has actually looked at this question. Um, just, uh, I mean, we talk about, I mean, I don't, I know we don't want to get to a debate here about it, but in fact, um, the studies that exist have not looked certainly at mitochondrial disease in autism. There are no such studies that I know of except the ones that you cited earlier, such as the Portuguese study that found a significant percentage of children, uh, with autism had a mitochondrial disease. And, uh, the large population-based studies, which have serious flaws, and uh, so I don't understand where the evidence exists that negates the association. There may be no evidence one way or the other. That's something I'm willing to um, accept. I don't see any evidence showing lack of association. Uh, well, I see evidence that fails to reveal an association, and there's some questions about the methods and whether or not there were earlier versions of those studies that did show an association. So uh, that, that my question really goes to the statement of there being um, uh, no evidence in the sense that it's misleading to suggest that this question has actually been, been studied. Uh, if it's not been studied, fine. But to say there's no evidence suggests a full sense of safety in vaccination in that it has been studied and there is no evidence affirmatively as opposed to to um, um, studies that suggest there should be more research. 
So that, that's my question about no evidence. Yes, I, I, it's a very valid question. Um, logically, one can't prove a negative. Um, one can only prove a positive association. But the opportunity to study a relationship to vaccinations and autism was the when the vaccinations were changed. Not stopped, but changed. Um, vaccinations are coming out now relatively actually in with a fairly high frequency, and the kind of population studies that would be optimal would be immunize half the children, don't immunize half the children, are not ethical. We just can't do that. Um, the association of autism and mitochondrial disease is a very, very difficult study to do. And we and others have attempted to begin such studies. Um, the study I, I gave you the reference for is one such study. Uh, looking at genomic evidence, the mitochondrial DNA and the nuclear, I'm sorry, my voice is a little hoarse, uh, the nuclear DNA in a population with autism. Um, and that's going to only approach one aspect. We could do other such studies uh, requiring quite a lot of money and quite a lot of care, but they're and, but they're difficult to do. Uh, we could do phosphorus NMR studies of the brain of autistic children to look for abnormalities in those phosphorus compounds that are made by the mitochondria. The problem is that those children would have to be heavily sedated or anesthetized uh, because this is a population of children who uh, would have a difficult time following the direction that they have to lie quiet, not move, for a number of minutes. Uh, in order to obtain the optimal kind of result. Um, and we would have a very hard time, appropriately have a hard time, getting permission for such a study. Uh, to obtain blood studies from a large number of autistic children that might provide evidence for mitochondrial disease only can give us positive evidence, such as looking at lactic and pyruvic acids. If they're abnormal, it's suggestive, but not definitive 
of a mitochondrial disease. Um, getting permission to do those kinds of blood studies is difficult but doable. Getting the money to do such a large number of studies to really define a large cohort so we can say, uh, yes, this is, this is a likely possibility, a high association. Uh, such studies are being done, um, but it's going to take a while for those results to come, to, to be completed, be available. Uh, I'm certainly not saying that we shouldn't be doing such studies, but they will all be only approximations of what you would appropriately call definitive study. We cannot definitively prove, particularly with something as complex as mitochondrial physiology, uh, the absence of an effect. Thank you for that, Dr. Holton. So I'm going to go ahead and allow a couple other questions. So, uh, so we have some time to also discuss, I think, more about the relationship that we see in our kids with who have mitochondrial disease and who have autism. For example, I've heard concern from parents about what are some of the clinical findings that make you think mitochondrial disease when you have a child who has autism. But before we talk about that, I'll open the floor for some additional questions. So um, go ahead. Who would like to ask the next question? Hello? Hello, am I on? Here. You are. I, we can hear you. Go ahead. Hi. This is uh, John Poling. I came on a little bit late. I'm sorry I missed the first portion of your talk, but uh, Christy, thank you very much for you know, getting this important talk going, and I appreciate you, Dr. Holtzman, uh, volunteering to speak about this uh, very important topic and get a discussion rolling about the uh, you know, the importance of the association between mitochondrial dysfunction and autism. Um, as many parents with children who have autism uh, unfortunately get this behavioral diagnosis and that's all we get, you know, behavioral diagnosis with behavioral intervention and our children have significant medical issues uh, which often fail to be addressed, problems with uh, uh, immunity or inflammation or metabolic problems and uh, uh, these are potential areas of medicine where we can make some significant impact to help the children. Uh, and I think that this type of research in this in this vein is going to yield significant fruit to, you know, not just help children with autism, but also help uh, help children and, and adults suffering from mitochondrial disorders as well. Um, I, I heard the discussion. I came in. I heard the discussion with uh, uh, with Bob Breckow and uh, and Dr. Holtzman, and, and um, you know both have important points. I think that uh, you know anecdote, and you know I started talking about um, my daughter's case, and you know anecdote in itself is certainly not uh, science in the sense of proving causation. Um, that being said, uh, there's very important, you know, I, 
I'm in, I'm in private practice. I see patients uh, every day in neurology practice, and I, I learn every day from my patients case by case. And each patient teaches me something about uh, what's going on with them so that I can help the next patient. And what you can really take away from an anecdote or a single case is you can make the proper hypotheses to ask the proper scientific questions. And so whereas I agree with Dr. Holtzman that anecdote is not science, I also agree with Bob that anecdote can direct science to ask the proper questions. And I think with this issue of vaccines, autism, and other environmental triggers, the proper questions have not been asked. And, you know, we say in science, you know, I also have a, a Ph.D. in biophysics, so we, you know, we talk about in science that you can't prove a negative, and, and that's a little over oversimplification of the issue. I mean, whereas you can't really prove a negative, you can certainly determine the probability that a negative result is accurate, and that's that's called statistical power. And statistical power is derived from an understanding of what an effect size is, and your effect size is derived from the certainty of your case definition. And unfortunately, when you're talking about autism, you're dealing with not just a single uh, cause, you're dealing probably with 20 or 30 different causes of a similar behavioral phenotype. So, uh, for instance, you know, as neurologists, Dr. Holtzman and I probably see patients with headaches and seizures on a daily basis and we're trying to tease out, you know, the 20 or 30 different causes that could provide that symptom. So autism is really just a symptom, and we're trying to define this subset as possibly having an underlying metabolic disorder causing the symptom. And it's, it's not even clear at this point if it's the cause or the effect. I think this is something that, um, you know, science can possibly have some answers for us in the next five or ten years. Although, as, you know, as parents, we, we don't like the, the speed of the way science moves. But, um, um, you know, that, that's unfortunately the process. Um, you know, backing up, talking about, um, you know, immunization. And, 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 you know, having been in this now for, you know, almost 10 years, um, you know, obviously our experience was that immunization was a trigger for deterioration. A cotemporaneous or a temporal correlation certainly does not prove a causation. Um, but, but that being said, um, you really have to look at the issue and say, well, could this be a, could this be an underlying susceptibility that could lead to a deterioration? Could this explain what's happening? And, and by the same token, this could also explain why the population-based studies showing no connection with, well, there's really only been two factors of immunization looked at in detail, and that's the thimerosal issue and the MMR issue uh, have been looked at in detail, and, and those studies were, were quote, negative studies. Um, but if you want to consider that uh, you're dealing with a subpopulation in a, with a poor case definition, um, you know, as a scientist, those studies did not reassure me 
that there was no association in the case of my daughter. I, I, you know, there very well could be association, just it wouldn't be detected because you're dealing with a smaller subpopulation. And, th and that's the issue that science really has to tease out. And, and um, you know, I think that this could be done in short order by looking at um, uh, second-born SIBs, you know, something that could be answered very quickly. Um, but anyway, this was question and answer, and I've been, I've been rambling. I don't mean to uh, occupy time. Yeah, I, the, um, I hope you can understand me with my host voice. Um, John, there are studies of siblings, second-born or later-born, subsequently-born siblings of autistic patients. So they are being extensively studied. Um, it's, I don't know that that's a way of getting to the question of could patients with demonstrated mitochondrial disease uh, be at greater risk from a number of different potential environmental toxins, whether it's iatrogenic, as in vaccinations, uh, or other toxins that are airborne or waterborne, etc. We don't know. And yes, they're all, they are possible, but there isn't anything yet pushing hard in that direction, and uh, I think until there is evidence that the population of children with or without underlying metabolic disease uh, are at greater risk for autism if they have immunizations. Uh, the immunization benefit will still outweigh that risk. If there's a, a clearly demonstrated association, then that statement would have to change. I'd like to interject here. This is Christy. And also tune in from the parent's perspective while the science is happening on one hand. On the other hand, as a parent, you're living and caring for the child affected by these diseases. And I encourage the autism community, as I also encourage the mitochondrial disease community, to really learn to advocate and be very proactive in managing the disease. Because if you're not aware that the physiologic stress, for example, of an infection can potentially trigger a devastating metabolic cascade for the child who has mitochondrial disease because you're focused on just your child with autism, then you are going to experience, you know, undesirable things with your child that you regret. And so I'm always trying to help our patient and parent community to be a little proactive in making sure that you, you learn about dysautonomia and you learn about managing germ control and energy output and these things so that you can help balance 
the potential negative aspects of the disease while still dealing with, I think, the need for more discussion and research and, and so forth. I mean, we in the mitochondrial disease community often feel like we don't have enough answers. And I'm sure you all in, in the autism community feel the same way. And so, however, now if, if there are cases where the two are not mutually exclusive of one another, it's really important that you learn about the aspects of mitochondrial disease or the aspects of daily life that could potentially be negative and have a negative effect on a child with mitochondrial disorder because um, they do have consequences, and that's important. Christy, um, I agree with that. This, this is actually Terry Poling, Dr. Poling's wife, Hannah Poling's mother, and, um, and we are dealing with both of those issues um, on a daily basis, and I completely agree with you. Um, one of the questions that I have for Dr. Holtzman is that I, I think it's really important you're correct that we, we, de we do need to have the evidence. However, um, in trying to figure out what exactly would that evidence entail, if we were going to do a study and we were going to look at kids with mitochondrial disease and we were going to see if vaccination affected them, right now we are being told, and it's, you know, it seems to be true that when they are exposed to a disease entity, or they can get very, very serious issue. Uh, by definition, when Hannah receives four live vaccine viruses at the same time, there's just absolutely no way that you could argue that that would not affect a child with a mitochondrial dysfunction because she's getting a live disease. She's getting... Um, adjuvants that are going to help boost up her immune system so that she'll react. So I think that even though we haven't looked at the science specifically, that at least when it comes to a live attenuated vaccine, you have to consider that when vaccinating a child with mitochondrial disease or disorder, that we have to think about how many vaccines we want to give at the same time in addition to the time of year, perhaps, that we're giving those vaccines, because this year they may be exposed to various flus and colds that are inevitable. And at the same time with those, top of the immune system um, needs energy. I think we have to think about that, and we can't wait for the science on that. We have to think about that now. And I'm not suggesting that we don't it. I'm just suggesting that we think at the schedule now compared to what it was before. Additional vaccines are coming on board. There's, I believe there's seven or eight now at the age of two months. Um, so we have to be cognizant of that when we're thinking about vaccinating our children. May I? May I say some, ask something? Yes. Sure. Introduce yourself, please. Hi, Hi. My name is Natalie um, Mitchell, and I'm in a situation where I, in my gut, I know there is something. I've been through, like, Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, through Metabolics, and they found nothing. And then I work with these Dan doctors, these defeat autism male doctors, who, you know, will show one blood test, and it will show elevated lactic acid levels, and then the next month it won't. It kind of goes back and forth, back and forth, and we chronically have high Epstein-Barr levels, um, which can mean something and may not, chronically have high 
herpes 6 viral levels, which can mean something and maybe not. Um, and I feel like I'm just spinning around in circles. And again, like I said, I've actually been through metabolics, but they found nothing. And I, you know, she, she's speaking of, you know, being introduced to these, you know, viruses, how much of a load it can put on them. And I'm kind of stuck. I don't even know where to go for help at this point. So I don't know if anybody has any advice for me. May I interject? They uh, kind of look at me like I have ten heads, you know? No, you don't Where, have where he has such low tone. I mean, this kid has been through so much physical therapy. He doesn't maintain anything. Um, he's doing wonderfully, on a cut, you know, his cognitive skills have just, I mean, he's just blossomed, but his body is still a wreck, his gut is still a wreck, and I feel like no one can help me. Dr. Holtzman, may I? Uh, well, I was going to assure you, you don't have ten heads. I know, I know. Um, <laughs> Like, uh, this is a big, this is a big, big problem. There are huge number of laboratory tests you could get, uh, almost all of which have had no appropriate correlations with human disease. Uh, the Certainly, those tests are going, the results are going to vary with the conditions in which the assays are run. That's just in the laboratory. They're going to vary with many factors in your child, such as when he ate or how much he slept or whether he has a virus as children will, you know every six or eight weeks. Uh, and to understand those laboratory results in relation to a disease is impossible. Because that's why we do need science. We need the correlation of multi in multiple subjects of the laboratory test run well and run in a similar way uh, and the correlation with disease. Uh, you can't... Yes, sir. I'm sorry, what? I'll wait. Well, you can't make life decisions on the basis of those kinds of laboratory studies. Um, back to, to Mrs. Poling's comment, you're absolutely right that these are things to be concerned about. Exposure to attenuated viruses, uh, multiple exposures to uh, adjuvants, uh, and the best we can do is take those that have had no demonstrated systematic relationship to adverse outcomes and that do have demonstrated effects on resistance to disease. It's a, yeah, a risk-benefit ratio 
that you hate to see run on your child, but it has, they have been run on multiple subjects. Uh, before those vaccines are released and used to the general population. Uh, so that's another thing to balance. Uh, we are trying to keep up with all of this. Uh, and it's often confusing. But to do it as an individual with your one child who you're so concerned about and that you have such emotional attachment to the outcome, you have to be so very careful. And what Christy said about the blame, the guilt you may feel, if things don't work out the way you had hoped, is something else to be very careful of. And it's hard to tell you, well, use professional help to support you in this. Because very often, I also am a practicing physician. Uh, John Poling has just said the same. We often are trying to learn from patients, learn from our experience, which means there's a lot we don't know. Uh, that was an so Thank you, Dr. Holt. One more thing. The adage of pediatrics is to do no harm. And that's what we try to do. So, unfortunately, avoiding treatments, avoiding preventative methods such as you know, vaccines can also be a way of doing harm. And you have to be so careful. Thank you. Please, Dr. Holtzman. I'm going to let you interject. I'm just going to let us say goodbye to Dr. Holtzman because he's been on with us for an hour. And unless you'd like to stay, Dr. Holtzman, I know you have patients who are waiting for you as well. And on behalf of the group, I just want to thank you for well, I can stay for this one last question. Okay, great. So I know you wanted to interject. So go ahead and introduce yourself first, please. Thank you. Hi, my name is Kim Stagliano. I'm the mother of three daughters with autism. And Dr. Holtzman, we have had significant testing with Marvin Natevich at the Cleveland Clinic. I'm sure you're familiar with him. I and love Marvin, yes. He's a doll. I, I, he's a true scientist. He's taken a great interest in my girls, and I appreciate that. Our testing through him has shown subtle but significant mitochondrial dysfunction. And what he, how he put to me was if he had seen my kids' lab tests, in one child in one family, he must not have paid any attention to it. But seeing the same variance in three children in one family sent up some flags to him. So I, I think we're a unique situation with three who are affected by autism, and they do each have underlying mitochondrial dysfunction. I just wanted to point that out to you. Yes, there, there are. Uh... There are not a small number of such families, and it's, um, this is obviously enormously uh, difficult for you. Uh, and Marvin has been involved in this field for a long time. Dr. Holtz, um, I'm, I'm a physician that's 
a number of children with autism. And uh, I have long gone to Mass General for um, conferences that have been very helpful. Um, people there are very open-minded. And as a physician that sees children with autism, I can tell you um, that there would be many physicians um, that would be very happy to share our findings with you. This association that you have been hearing about from parents is something that is very impressive. And it's not just within three children within one family. There are many, many families whose stories are um, echoing the comments that you have heard today. Um, I, as a pediatrician and a physician, sometimes have a great deal of difficulty, as, um, as we all do, if we see this um, evidence, explaining to mothers why, for instance, um, the um, immunization given on the day of birth to mothers that do not have hepatitis and uh, who um, have maybe had a child that has had uh, some vulnerability shown in a previous sibling um, still get immunizations when they're even premature and have a blood-brain barrier that has not been um, developed enough to uh, weather the onslaught or to make um, antibodies against these, um, these viruses. We see these children that are affected, and, and as Dr. Poland said and, and Terry Poland, um, these, these are a subset of children, but they have now, because of the Internet, been able to communicate with each other, and many, many um, physicians have had children that have been affected, and they uh, come from all different specialties, and so they have looked at many of these patterns that you're hearing about today. Um, I hope that you will um, take this to heart, because as scientists, we must question what we do, and um, when there are so many children that are affected, and we see that there are um, millions of dollars being um, devoted to research. Um, it's hard not to want some of this um, interest to go toward patterns that are evident to those of us that are treating um, these children. Yes, I think the difficulty that science has always faced is which of the many questions are the critical ones to ask yes. and the ones that we can possibly get answers to. Uh, and I certainly agree uh, with you and with John Poling that uh, human personality can be a source of important scientific questions. Uh, but how to ask them and how to be able to get answers that we can say to you, this you can believe, mm -hmm. is very difficult. Perhaps we could start with a summit where um, you uh, would invite doctors who have a significant population on the autism spectrum and ask them to bring uh, some of those tests that would um, show you evidence of the association between mitochondrial disease um, in this population. And then um, going from there, devise some other um, lab tests that could be done prospectively 
on populations that we would see. That way we would be working together, um, and, and I'm sure we would be able to move this forward. Uh, that summit would also have to include the naysayers and the skeptics. Uh, Absolutely. Uh, because, you know, to speak to me, in part you're speaking to the, uh, the converted, uh, even though I don't understand this. Of course. Okay. Um, the fact that you would even um, devote some time to speaking with these families uh, is, is evidence of that. Um, and thank you, Dr. Holtzman. So this is Kathy, and I'm just to follow up on that, I would encourage you to email me, and let's let's talk further about that. Let's pursue the possibility um, of of a roundtable summit. So, um, yeah, go ahead. I just didn't catch your first name. My, my name is Catherine. Um, I'm scared, um, Dr. Holtzman and Dr. Poling, that um, my child is actually being used to prove the other direction. Um, my child was born with explosive head overgrowth, which is clearly gestational, um, and but it doesn't negate the fact that from his six-month CPC polio HIV, he has a huge quarter-inch scar, um, blah, blah, blah. So I'm not going to discuss about um, about vaccinations. Um, it's just nine of one. My problem is, is that we've seen a doctor, and we had a frozen biopsy. It didn't show that uh, my child has mitochondrial disease. Um, based on our experience, we went the Dan route, and when we started supplements when my child was 30 months old, you know, this is a kid who couldn't walk to more than one house without crying, suddenly was running six blocks to the park. I mean, it was an incredible transformation. And I'm not talking about cognitively, I'm just talking about, you know, he had energy, you know. Um, so, you know, I'm not a doctor, and I cannot diagnose my child with mitochondrial disease, but based on our experience, it's the only thing that makes sense. Unfortunately, my child had a frozen biopsy, and due to insurance reasons, you know, we will never be able to get a fresh biopsy. And I'm very, very concerned that um, in his, um, so far this year, you know, because this is the new popular thing to do, um, he's biopsied 20 kids this year, and only one so far showed mitochondrial disease, and he's using frozen. So I'm very scared um, that um, within your world, um, you know, frozen versus fresh and the scientific evidence and the correlation and basically my child was being proved to say there is no correlation and you know and I'm not allowed to diagnose it but that's very scary to me and it's scary from a you know funding point of view it's scary from a scientific point of view it's scary from a grant point of view so you could speak about frozen and fresh and you know your own world that would be interesting uh, that's Another hour's discussion. <laughs> um, again, with lots of disagreement. But uh, so I'm afraid I don't have the time to do that now. Okay. Um, I'm sorry. Maybe we need to we need to add that to our list of uh, topics for the year because uh, you're not alone in in questioning that. And unfortunately, there are families with without autism that face the fresh frozen debate. As well, and and uh, and and some doctors don't believe in muscle biopsies at all. So how about that? So um, Dr. Holtzman is right. It's a, it's a lengthy discussion, but certainly one I think that we we need to talk about. Dr. Holtzman, do you have time for another question, or do we need to say goodbye? No, I, I need to uh, actually do a few more things before a two o'clock meeting. Thank you, Dr. Holtzman. So,
let's all tell Dr. Holton, thank you. You don't have to hang up. You can actually stay on the line and um, take more discussion questions within the group. But let's please help me to thank Dr. Holton right now for his time and his dedication to helping patients. Thank you for health. your questions and your comments. Thank you, Dr. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So, great. So, if you'd like to stay on the line and continue to have a, a, some additional discussion. Um, can I ask a, oh, hello. Can I ask Go ahead. about the fresh, um, the, well, the mus of muscle biopsy. Is that necessary? Um, I guess I have one of the doctors who doesn't necessarily require the biopsy. Um, it, it was necessary for me um, in my situation. Um, I have a scientist for a husband who doesn't believe anything, and so okay. I, I basically needed it, and so, um, anyways, so, you know, you don't need it for a damn doctor, you don't need it for lots of doctors. In the university that we're at, um, and in the university system that we're in, um, you know, I was in a situation where I did need it, and unfortunately, I gambled against it, and, you know, I shouldn't have taken the gamble, so... We, my son was diagnosed with mitochondrial disorder without a muscle biopsy, and my understanding was that biopsy, all it would do would be confirm a diagnosis and really wouldn't alter, um, you know, his treatment or anything like that. So he elected not to pursue that. Um, I just didn't, I was always confident in that, that decision. Uh, no, it's a fine decision. I'm just saying I'm in, I was in a situation where... I was just curious. Yeah. You know, you, it, um, it depends on the doctor, so I think I'll be quiet now. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're, you're welcome to share your comment. And, and this is Christy, and I really was curious that actually we have on the calendar a panel discussion about diagnosis because, you know, I, I often bang my head against the wall and sit in front of our medical advisory committee and say, why can't you just tell me the algorithm so that we can just get the word out? This is what you need to do. And, and it's, there's just so much disagreement, um, even within the expert community, about how to diagnose mitochondrial disease. I will say that Baylor um, in Texas is what a lot of the doctors up here in the Boston area now use for some blood work before doing the biopsy because particularly if you have an idea clinically what you're looking for. Um, so, for example, if you have a child who you know has certain findings on their MRI or you know has uh, certain, you know, blood markers or you can tell clinically that the, you know, you're seeing more stroke-like activity, which is common with some mitochondrial diseases but not others. If you, if you have an idea clinically what category you can you can start to look, then it's a little easier to do some of the blood work to get further confirmation. Um, but that hard and fast, you know, information and kind of the gold standard, some will argue, is the fresh muscle biopsy to really be able to tell, um, you know, every aspect of that mitochondrial function. You have seems to be a higher false negative rate with frozen biopsies and with fresh, and, and again, that's part of the debate and the discussion. Okay. Our blood work was sent to Baylor University from part from his testing. That was where it was sent for. If they actually have a good algorithm so that if the physician knows 
a little bit clinically what they're looking for, and, and it helps if they have experience seeing different patients with mitochondrial disease, right, then they can help try to know which tests to order based on those algorithms. So it's pretty useful, and that's something that I think is relatively new and is helpful um, as opposed to several years ago having no options to really be able to do that. So that's, it's good news because we're making progress. It just doesn't keep up with the rate which we need the progress, right, because we see our families affected so dramatically, and it's difficult to sit back and watch. So um, other, other questions and comments or um, perspectives that you would like to share? May I ask Dr. Colton if he's still on? John, are you still on the phone? Oops, sounds like you might not be there anymore. So. Hello? Oh, John, are you, hi, John, are you still on the phone? Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm here. Okay, somebody hey. wanted to ask a question. Is that all right with you? Um, sure, sure. Okay. Um, go ahead. Just introduce yourself first. Okay. My name is Rhonda. I have a son who's three who was diagnosed um, at 17 months with autism and a couple months later with mitochondrial disorder at Kennedy Krieger in Baltimore. And Dr. Kelly was, um, and I guess, who follows him for his mitochondrial disorder. And I was curious if you know, um, he had talked to me about some screening tests um, for fatty acid levels, a possible newborn screening test. Are you familiar with that at all? Is that? Um, well, I know that he, you know, uh, Dr. Kelly, um, is a brilliant man. You know, I, I trained with him at Hopkins. He was one of my professors, and um, I think um, I think he's involved with the uh, Maryland newborn screening. He's he's part of the committee that decides what tests get put on mm -hmm. the panels. So um, he probably has a lot of inside information about um, how to how newborn screening is being updated and constantly improved. I'm not familiar, though, with what fatty acid screening. I think with mitochondrial um, defects, there are some um, cases where on the urine organic acids, you can see some short-chain uh, fatty acids that occasionally due to a beta-oxidation defect or some other issue. Okay. Thank you. Uh, you're welcome. I was great. Go ahead. Do you have another question? Thank you, Christy, for uh, for having us on and uh, and sponsoring this. John, I hope it's the the first of many, and um, and I really appreciate you joining us today. You added quite a bit to the discussion, so I'd like to be further in touch. I think there's some long overdue collaboration between our communities as well. So thank you so much. I really appreciate you, your time. Okay. Take care. I'll say hi to okay. my wife too, since I rarely see her. I'm at work. <laughs> I'll give you the toll-free conference line, guys, anytime. Okay. <laughs> okay. I can hang up yet. Okay, so. Is he still there? I think you hung up, Terry. I have a, this is Catherine, and I sort of have a political uh, question. Um, it's not just the autism kids whose diagnosis are going up. I mean, it's ADHD kids, um, teenage allergies, type 1 diabetes, I've heard is going up 3% a year. Um, you know, all these autoimmune disorders are going up like crazy. Is there any, you know, and, you know, is it the environment? You know, you know, when Dr. Poland was talking about there's 20, 30 different reasons why, you know, our kids are getting autism. I mean, there's 20, 30 different reasons why kids are getting type 1 diabetes or penile allergies. 
is there any move to bring all of us together? You know, as, you know, because something's going on. Do you know what I mean? Is it the vaccines? Is it the environment? I mean, something is going on to all of our children, not just artistic children and not just our mitochondrial disease children. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, Catherine, I, I think of the same question often myself as well as a mother and interacting with lots of families who have um, children who are sick. And I agree with you that it's you, you kind of want to bang your head against the wall and go, what is going on? You know, um, so but to my knowledge, there has not been a uniform effort. I think in part there has been at least an undercurrent of um, parents aggregating together. And our job, I think, is to try to be um, passionate about what we believe while still trying to be diplomatic enough to be um, taken seriously by the scientific community and to be open-minded enough to accept sometimes when the answers that we hear so strongly that we want to hear aren't the ones that come to the surface. And to be able to work together that way. And it's happening in that sense. I mean, the autism community, for example, has done a great job over the last five years with awareness and so forth. And I feel like mitochondrial disease will be um, gaining more and more recognition in that same way as more people are being diagnosed and more relationships are being identified and, and so forth. But it's difficult, right? And you know this. When you're the parent of a disabled child, there's only so much of yourself you have to give at the end of the day. And um, But if you have ideas about that, and I mean this to all of you on the phone, I feel like the the undercurrent is there, and there there's two different types of relationships. There's the relationship in funding research, and there's the relationship in being able to um, describe the disease and what's happening amongst our own community, and and those may be two different things, right? And for MitoAction, we're a little bit more focused on the community mm-hmm. more than funding the scientific, more than being allies with the academic community. Mm-hmm. We want to be talking to the parents and families, not to the scientists, and not. And I don't mean that in that, like in the way that Dr. Holtzman participated today. We need his help. We need. Dr. Corson, we need Dr. Cohen, we need the, their participation and their expertise, but we need it on our level so that then we can be better advocates and better educators and, and help with that movement. Um, long answer to, no, I don't know of any group that is really identifying that as a concern. Does anybody on the phone have anything else to say about that? The NIDS protocol, which is a little bit different than the DAM protocol, is neuroimmune deficiency syndromes. Mm-hmm. And there are a, there's a doctor, his name is Dr. Goldberg, who's looking into a lot of that, really trying to push the envelope on that. I don't know if anybody's ever heard of that. No, I've heard of NIDS, but I mean, it's, it's, I'm, I'm talking really politically. Do you know what I mean? Like, you know, as a voice, I mean, you know, basically I have a good friend who's, who's a type 1 diabetes mother, who, interestingly enough, her child went hurtling into a coma within 24 hours of 18 months, um, DPT-HIV polio. Um, but, I mean, like, all of our kids are damaged. You know, the genes are going different directions. Do you know what I mean? So whether our kids have mito, do you know what I mean, or, or how their genes are going to go, but, you know, something is really going on. And so I'm just curious if there's just, I would love to be part of that group. 
you know what I mean? Like, you know, something is wrong with our environment. Something is wrong. You know, we're not well, I having... agree with you 100%. Yeah. You know, and... So how... Like I said, I'm just trying to find a doctor that doesn't look at me like I have two heads. Yeah. So if you know, have any recommendations, let me know. Dr. Kelly is Kennedy Krieger. <laughs> Dr. Kelly, I spoke with him. He's a... You know, he's one of those, you don't actually see him, you see his geneticist, but he's a really, from, I've never actually physically met him, but I've spoken with him several times on the phone, and always for like an hour or more, he's just been very good, I guess I've been lucky, but um, I, one of the things he spoke of was kind of what you're talking about, um, and his whole take on it was more of a, more than auto well, like an inflammatory, because also with those things like asthma and allergies and like irritable bowel, right, right. have also increased dramatically. And one of his takes was looking at um, the essential fatty acids for diets and the whole like Western changing Western diet culture, but not just um, that our kids are not their diet but how our diet has affected our genetic whatever. Yeah. It's, it's generational. Yeah, they agree. Right. And it goes on and on and on. Um, but that is things he told me, which I was, that's why I was trying to figure out how many people know about this and how, is it really just in the very, very early stages or is it, I don't know, and um, is looking at what they're working on from what he said is, developing um, a screening tool for newborns looking at their basic essential fatty acid panel because what they found is unlike what they have identified a relationship that at least identified yeah, a relationship exists between autism and mitochondrial disorder. Maybe we don't know the cause, but they've identified, yeah, yeah there is this subset of kids that there is definitely something going on there and what it's also has inflammatory processes and they have unique fatty acids and that they're trying to do a screening test for that in newborns so that the recommendation be that those kids who either they be further tested or defer, you know, maybe divide vaccines a little bit, wait till after that critical neurological period three or four years old, or they're given some live vaccines. and But I don't really understand it all. No, but like you, the Mind Institute a couple of years ago, um, it was on the eSpeaks. I don't know if you guys are on eSpeaks. Um, mm-hmm. Speaks. You know, Austin Speaks Weekly eSpeaks, you know, newsletter? Okay. About a year ago, the Mind Institute, their something study ready for this, has shown um, autoimmune diseases, autoimmune problems, like T1, T2 problems, in itty-bitties. All right? But... We, you know, so Kelly's showing um, the fatty acid problems. The Mind Institute is showing autoimmune problems. So it's sort of like sort of the same, you know, flip sort of the same same coin. Who is ever going to pay for this? Can you imagine paying for testing for every child in America? Well, I, my understanding was it's going to be the testing like our kids send through. It was just it was going to be another like thing in many screening. It wasn't really going to, but then only those who came out. Okay, at least it was a way to identify some and try to prevent some of exposure, like, uh, I don't know. Well, one of the problems 
um, when you go to a um, specialist like me or Zimmerman or any of those guys, is that your insurance and times they would, you know, telling a lot more people <coughs> in a study that you know, they were excluded because missing certain laboratory values is just the insurance wouldn't pay for it. It's an only for that that particular study. And that could be as simple as I and that problem a lot, I know Krieger, where they couldn't do several of the studies mm-hmm. insurance wouldn't pay for it. I I have a question for you guys. Um, Do you, as part of the autism mitochondrial disease community, do you all have a way to regularly be on the phone and talk to one another and and kind of keep the movement going and form the movement and and um, collaborate a little bit? Sure, see you every Friday. <laughs> I mean, but do you do that already? Or, um, yeah. on the Yahoo group, but, so I heard Bob, do you do that already on the phone? We, we do, not, um, in specific, uh, reference to mitochondrial disease, um, but that comes up all the time as, as a, one focus among many. But there's, there's constant, uh, uh, efforts, uh, especially on the political front, to try to pressure for more research, um, and also to respond to the earlier comments to try to broaden this um, beyond just autism, because um, and many of the children, I think, are misdiagnosed anyway, uh, but brought it to uh, diabetes, ADHD, which I think are also in many cases related to toxins. It's, it's just a Herculean task, especially when. Uh, we're up against a public health apparatus that is trying to undermine us at every turn by trying to show that we're credible, that there's no credible basis to say there's even an autism epidemic or an epidemic of chronic disease. You find public health, especially the AAP, as, as, as ridiculing the idea that there is an epidemic of chronic disease among children. And uh, so we're, we're sort of uh, always fighting against the tide of of the public health advocates because they want to preserve uh, the vaccine program, which is certainly justifiable, but not at the expense of children's health. So, um, yes, we do, but we, we, that's one of the reasons I'm on this call, and I thank Christy for doing this, is to try to develop connections between a pretty long-term, well-developed uh, now advocacy apparatus in the autism community, uh, and that's... Aside from Autism Speaks, that's, that existed before Autism Speaks and has continued, and it really has different focus, uh, focus than Autism Speaks. But trying to develop some connections to, to Idol Action and other groups like that because of the uh, chronic disease issue, which I think is directly tied in many cases to mitochondrial disease. So the uh, answer is yes, but. Well, I'm just thinking that, um, you know, for us, we have this infrastructure to be able to easily do large conference calls like this, and I would be happy to help moderate if a couple of you would also agree to take that on with me to 
you call it a task force, call it a support group, call it both. But I mean, let's let's set up a, a time where we have a standing call once a month. This is similar to the way that we have support groups for newly diagnosed families, and we have this call the first Friday of every month with a guest speaker and so forth. So we'll we'll pick a day and a time, and it'll be a standing call. And and again. There's an aspect of support that I think is really important that you're um, talking to other people who understand what your life is like, but then there's also an aspect of, um, you know, coalescing as a community and being able to come to a point where what we say means something and what we say sounds the same and we say it over and over again so that you start to be heard. And I would really encourage and love your participation with that. So it sounded like I got a couple of yeses when I said that. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> resounding. That's great. So, you know, so I actually have a lot of you on the phone, so I'm just going to, like, go out on the limb and and, and pick a time because I, I know when we have other meetings that would conflict on our support group calendar for MyoAction. So Fridays are our pretty much booked up with the um, the other support groups, but I'm going to jump back a day and actually um, throw it out there that, um, you know, let's say the second Thursday of the month at noon, we have a um, autism mitochondrial disease task force call. Anybody have major problems with second Thursdays at noon? Thursday is the only, I would love this, but Thursday is the only day I could not do and I know okay, we can accommodate probably everybody's, but you can't. But the fact that you're on this call gives you privilege. So, um, you know, so let's bump it back. Okay, so how about um, Tuesdays or Wednesdays then? Anybody? Tuesdays are good. Sure, Tuesdays are fine. Okay, so Tuesdays. Can we, can we move it to 1230? Because after Thursdays is the day. I'm just saying, you know, would 1230 be, would that be too awkward for other people? I'm a, I'm, I I could make it 12:30 both days because I have to pick up my kid from kindergarten and bring him to daycare. Oh, you're not alone in that. Sometimes the 12:30 thing works and sometimes not. So 12, so Tuesday, second Tuesday of the month at 12:30. How about that for folks? Sure. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Okay. Anybody else have any major conflicts with that? Since you're on the call, you get to say so. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So um, I am actually gonna. What do we yeah, call it? The new policy. What would you like to call it? Um, yeah, I was. Can we open up? <laughs> so I had, you know, um, do you like just autism mitochondrial disease task force as a start, and then when we all talk and see if you can come up with something that's a little bit more. Um, is, is our is our is our um, What's our mandate? Is our mandate really about autism, or is our mandate to get all these other autoimmune disease in here with us? Um, you know, I guess we start. it's for groups to start, but, but my thought would be that your first job is to get people with kids who have, looks like mitochondrial disease, looks like autism, Okay. you know, talking, uh, also aggregating, so maybe just autism, just mitochondrial disease community together a little better. And one of the challenges we have, and I imagine you guys have a similar situation, is we've got 
10 people in a room and every kid is different, right? right? So you go to describe that and you have 10 different stories and there's really value in deciding as a group um, how you tell your story, right? Mm-hmm. Because it it resonates with folks. I think in part what that, you know, it was really landmark for Hannah's case to be brought to light, even though she may not look exactly like your child, it was a story that people can remember. Mm-hmm. And so describing it is important and what it means. I also think it's worthwhile to do a little bit more, you know, just polling of our community about, okay, of of all of you, does your child have GI issues? Yes. You know, yes. and what kind? Does your child have more heat issues or more muscle tone issues or both? And those things and then to describe those you know, on our website and so forth to talk about it, it helps. It does help because it identifies what the problems are, and it also helps when we go and we talk to other companies who are interested in mitochondrial disease or in autism and we say, this is what the community is saying. And it also helps if you're a new family who's facing this, you can find some commonalities that you go, oh, this makes sense to me, or that, yes, this is it, or no, that's not. Does that make sense? So, um, okay, so I put it on the calendar. Autism, Mitochondrial Disease Task Force, um, at 12.30, right? Okay, so the task So, so does that um, start Tuesday? Sure. The second Tuesday. <laughs> second Tuesday of the month at 12.30 Eastern Time. Um, and I put it on the MitoAction calendar, so um, if you use a Google calendar, you can actually go on to the MitoAction website, and you'll see the little uh, Google MitoAction icon that says calendar. And if you click on that, it, we do all our stuff through Google Calendar, so if you have a Gmail account, you can get uh, an alert reminder and that kind of thing for it. Um, but this is, this is how things happen, guys, so I, I really applaud you for being involved and taking the time to be asking questions and thinking about ways that you can make a difference and um, you know I I imagine that part of the root of all of this is that you, you want it to be better for your kids and you don't want other families to go through the mistakes that might have happened in your case. Next question, you said the energy for education. Where on the website is it? I'm looking and I can't find it. Bottom of the website, center box. So, mitoaction.org. Okay. And then look on the bottom third of the website. There's three boxes. Yeah. And the middle one has a picture of a girl. Okay. Click right there. Okay. And it'll take you right to a page where the video plays. Okay. All right. And then the details... If you would like to, um, if you watch it and feel like it's helpful for you and you want an actual copy, mm-hmm. because that would be useful for you to take to school and, you know, play it there and so forth, just okay. send an email to info at mydirection.org and we'll send you a copy. Okay, great. And how can I give you money from Canada? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, money is always a nice, nice gift. Yeah. No, it's... Online, you know, when you're on the website, right there yeah. on that Energy for Education page, it says donations accepted. If you click there, um, right. as long as you have a, a cart, there's a, a donation page. So all right. It's all secure and so forth. Okay. So, um, so thank I thank you. you. But there, 
Yeah, you're welcome. The video is really great, so I encourage you guys to look at that um, if you have a school-aged child. It doesn't address the idea of autism, which actually during this call today I thought that would be a really neat follow-up video also that profiles some kids who did have autism in Mito, so you could really hone in on um, what are some of the unique challenges that that population of kids face and how can we help them. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't have that video done yet. <laughs> thought it was a good idea today. But this one is just a, a smattering of different age and different ability kids with Mito all the way up through, uh, you know, very inspiring young man who just graduated from high school and did a lot of his work through, you know, he has only like 30% of his vision by the time he graduated from high school, but he, he did. He's, so I encourage you to watch it, and, and maybe it'll help make an impact when you're trying to explain what that means that your kids need. Okay. Uh, and I probably feel like I'm repeating myself here, but does anybody have any advice for me? If Helen, I can indeed prove that my child does have a mitochondrial dysfunction. Do you need to but can I, again, I've been through metabolics at CHOP, and they found nothing. But can I, he was saying that it just depends on the time of day and the catabolic stresses that your child is under, basically, when you get these tests done. When my son was diagnosed, the one thing that I remember them saying is um, when we tried the vitamin cocktail, that the, basically he said the proof is in the pudding. That is really, it was irregardless of the test results. They put him on the cocktail before we even got the test results because he had all of the clinical signs of mitochondrial disorder. And um, they adjusted the cocktail somewhat when they got the results. Who did that? Your doctor? No, I, we have not seen doctors. This was just me and Rebecca Kern at Kennedy Creeker. Ruth, are you still on the line? I think she has somebody else who CCs in that area, but Ruth, are you yeah. there? Yeah. Um, but that was what they said was, it, you know, because sometimes the tests aren't always, you know, reliable, that starting the cocktail, because it, it, nothing done is on his, you know, in any hurt him. The only improvements we saw really was his energy level, but... You know, they had told us stories of kids, kids who, you know, had been nonverbal and in just a short period of time of being on the medical, you know, became verbal. We didn't have that energy level improve so dramatically and very, very quickly um, went from to 20 hours a day at just about age two to being able to be awake and alert to be able to learn and be available for you know, various learning, but that was his, it, our biggest concern with his, I mean, our biggest improvement. Nothing else really has changed. Um, I mean, I guess I could concern with that because I think after a long time, you start losing sight of things and what helped what. And, uh, I mean, we've been doing this for a few years, and, I mean, believe me, we've made dramatic gains. Um, but I guess, you know, I, I'm always interested to see, you know, am I giving him the right and like we, that. we took my son off for a period of time because I wasn't convinced it really was doing that. You know, it cost a lot of money, and I wasn't sure. It's a fight to get him to take it three times a day. And I wasn't really sure that it was really having a lot of difference. And I didn't tell anybody we took it off. And two different people, like he was in a classroom and getting home therapy, 
one of his therapists at home and his teacher at school both said to me, one of them actually said his therapist at home actually asked if we needed to maybe adjust his medication. Maybe he was growing, like, how, you know, the other one just said, geez, you know, he's, he's really, really lethargic again. And we didn't see him tell them we would stop. Um, and we start, so I really believe that was, you know, that after that, because we started back and he went kind of back to hooked up a little bit. And we have ups and downs, but you know, in terms of his energy, maybe you just need somebody who is willing, willing to try, because they're not hurtful medication. I mean, we're not that have, you know, terrible fires. They're a cocktail of crime and Coke 210 and Tanzany and you can do it individually as leapers, you do yours individually. We do. Like we do as a, as a cocktail. So on the Mito Action website, if you use the search box up in the top right hand corner and type in Mito Cocktail, then there's some good articles about that that describe all the different components of it and also talk about um, the concept of compounding, if you don't know about that already, so that you don't really want to go out to the drugstore and just buy, you know, B1 over the counter and start smishing it up and try to get well, it your child. Right, you don't know if you're giving them what you eat a lot of it because they are high doses, and the compounding pharmacies actually do a great job in, in getting you to not have to take, um, you know, 200 mils of something. But you have to have a prescription for it so that you do need a doctor who's willing to at least learn um, to write that. But And I guess the other thing I would say, just in case you didn't know, is some of the aspects of the cocktail, particularly cocaine, are soluble vitamins, so they take several weeks for, sorry, so some of the cocktail components, CoQ10 specifically, are fat-soluble. So it takes several weeks for a therapeutic level to build up. So if you don't see results right away, it doesn't mean that you never will. Um, I felt it, it, it takes it takes a while. Um, you know, it there's a while some, for the diarrhea to go away that you felt. Well, you know, that's interesting. I mean, because there are some side effects of the CoQ10 and stomach upset is one of them. As is, you know, not being able to sleep, and so it's it's a tightrope, I think. Um, but it is one of those that you want to. Try to tolerate for several weeks before you decide if it's helping or not. Um, so you can start and before the cocktail, you sh- you can start it separately or you can start it as part of the cocktail. It's really uh, up to what you feel like you should do. So I know some people who start the whole thing, and some people who want to go in stages so they can really try to see which parts help. Um, it helps the more you know about the mitochondrial disease, and I know in the situation of, I think it was Catherine who was asking that question, you don't have the diagnosis to go on. But for folks in general, the more you know, the better you can try to tailor your cocktail because the the reason you give the cocktail is that there are natural cofactors in the body that help with the synthesis of ATP in the energy production cycle in the mitochondria. So, So, for example... Um, B1, cystiamine, is a natural cofactor. It's one of the enzyme complex complexes involved in, you know, the processing of energy early on. And so if you 
you know, the idea is you hyperload the thiamine, more of it will get used and it will help the energy production and have more synthesis of ATP. So it's really hard to prove, but that's the theory. So if you knew that you had uh, a pyruvate deficiency, for example, then loading up the thiamine would help more than if you had complex 2 and you were loading up the thiamine, right? Because you really want to know what type of defect you have in order to appropriately know what um, supplements to be, um, you know, in high doses. And I guess Having said that, it's not going to hurt you. The yeah. actual, you know, where exactly are we having, um, what exactly should I be supplementing? Because things seem to change from month to month. And I'm, you know, told to give the, uh, the basics, the selenium, the zinc, you know, uh, amino acid, I mean, fatty acids, the basics. Rather so than we'll something specific. So, again, if you look at the the article on um, mitoaction.org about the cocktail, like the, the most... What? I'm sorry. Just search at the on the search box on the... For mitococktail, and you'll find it. Um, and there, and it says like understanding the mitococktail, and it goes into in depth of each of the components. There's an audio recording also of a pharmacist who did this conference call and talked about it. Um, that those are the cocktail components that for mitochondrial disease they take. I, I don't know as much about the Dan doctors and what they recommend. I'd actually like to look into that to compare, but. From the mito perspective, that's, those are the core of what's really in most patients, whether they're adults or kids. Can I ask a quick question? Sure. Um, my name is Susan Reimer, and Natalie, I'll talk to you later. Um, I, um, I, um, I just wanted to mention, like, my older son um, has complex one as diagnosed by Dr. Kelly, and I'm just kind of thinking things through. I post this on the MetaMito Autism site. I didn't know whether or not it made sense to ultimately provide the end product in cellular respiration. So, you know, if the end product is ATP, would it be then advisable ultimately to be giving the end product um, as a supplement? And it's not something that's ever mentioned in the Mito cocktail. And we've been doing Mito Cocktail for months, and we have seen huge improvement. Um, but I just didn't know. I've never heard anyone say to use ATP, um, although I did see something in uh, Dr. Amy Asko's book that said support mitochondrial function to use ATP. And then all of a sudden it kind of clicked to me. I'm like, well, why not just give the end product unless it would downregulate the production of it? So that was my you know, that's the first I've ever heard, for me, of ATP supplementation. So um, I guess I can say that it's not common in our community, but um, but interesting. I'll have to look it up. Anybody else have experience with that? Yes, I actually supplement both my kids with ATP because they are both on the ASCO protocol. And with my older one, who has my issues, I saw you saw what? I'm sorry. I saw him in his energy level and in his muscle tone. Huh. Very nice. Um, 
I'd be interested. I just I put that out there on the Netamido autism site, and I just want to hear more feedback from other parents that have tried it. And I thank you very much for your for your input. Um, Amy also also suggests the NADH. Yes, that's the one that had de- that definitely has made a difference for us. That made a big difference for you as well. It's made a difference. I mean, as far as the overall protocol, there's multiple components. Um, we recommend to start the microcognitive program a little later into our program, but so obviously a mito kid, she suggested that I just give it a try. HC and the NHH make a difference, muscle tone, energy level, stamina, coordination, all the lovely stuff. Okay, and then I had another. Um, I think about the kids all the time, and so I hadn't noticed that. So my older son um, has shown very high levels of cocoporphyrin, um, which is an indicator of heavy metal uptake. And he is also, um, we went to Mount Sinai and had a bone lead test done and had a lot in him, almost five now. Um, so I also wonder about a couple of things. So, you know, is lead then binding to one of the proteins causing the dysfunction ultimately because um, I know there are ferrous sulfate or um, there's iron uh, electron transport carriers in complex one. And so I think, well, you know, could this all be indicative of metals? And then you have another issue, on a side note, not to make your head spin here, um, but we also do have um, a sucrase isomaltase deficiency. So... Ultimately, coming from the GI angle, we see Dr. Bowie up in Boston. Ultimately, coming from the GI angle, I also think, well, could all of this just be that the complex one diagnosis is truly because he was never, ever getting glucose to his mitochondria. So if we never got the initial glucose to the mitochondria, you know, ultimately, could this just be all a result of that? Wow, those are more detailed questions than I think. <laughs> you know, I think that. So, yeah, and I mean, great train of thought, and it relates to another question that I got online um, in that is there a role of contaminants and toxins in mitochondrial disease? And um, I, would, I would tell you that I have never seen it or heard a doctor tell me, yes, that's a component. However, I hear anecdotally from families quite often that they feel that that's a component um, for their particular case. In, I have to look at the calendar, um, I believe it's May, I'm, I've invited um, James Dykes, who is, yeah, May, who um, wrote a book called um, Medications That Are Toxic to the Mitochondria. He's the R&D guy for Pfizer. And he's going to be talking about drugs and medications which are toxic to the mitochondria in May, which is very interesting because particularly in our adult mitochondrial disease population, you hear lots of folks who were on a drug, say, for their diabetes, and then all of a sudden develop mitochondrial disease, right, out of the blue. And they they feel very strongly there's a correlation, but have never been really validated in that. So um, I'm interested to have them join us and hear a little more about that because, again, it's just more information that we have that we may not have known. So so um, 
I was gl- so glad that all of you joined us today. It sounds like one more thing. Can I just ask one question? Sure. Have you have you seen in the past people that were um, pregnant that have prenatal exposures, um, and then their children are born with mitochondrial dysfunction? Is that a common thing to see? Um, I would say that I just hear in general that sometimes people feel that they were exposed to something. Um, not as common prenatally, but, you know, there's not always a child who's born as an infant who gets diagnosed with mitochondrial disease right away, so I'm not always sure that mom goes back and makes that connection, you know. But um, I've heard of a few families who felt like they lived in an area that, you know, had a chemical plant or had some other exposure, and, and then that child, you know, they have other healthy children, and then they have this one child who has a spontaneous mutation. Um, I hear it from adults more often because the adults are the example of folks who were, in some cases, you know, makes sense. You look back at their case history and they were kind of sick, never could really handle an infection, not the type who always had a lot of energy their whole life, and then it was some physiologic stress like pregnancy or surgery or something like that that really was the tipping point for them in their adulthood as mitochondrial disease patients that made them really start to get more symptomatic. There are other adults who I talked to who were healthy and robust and then traveled overseas or were in contact with something that they believe, you know, or medication that then they were, you know, really, literally, like healthy one month and disabled the next. So I, I think it again goes back to that bigger question, right? Um, so I need to wrap us up, but I just want to say thank you so much for all of you for um, for such enthusiastic participation and and being here and agreeing to be part of our new task force that will talk about this topic. And um, it seems to me that we should have another call later in the year with a different person as a speaker to gain, you know, different perspectives. And also it seems that there is more being published on this pretty regularly, so it would be interesting to see what has happened maybe six months from now to talk about again. Um, but I'm looking forward to talking with you guys again next Tuesday. And Yep, go ahead. I'm sorry. I'm an adult, and I'm not going to be with you guys next Tuesday. Um, I, I, I've just been waiting a long time um, to try to ask a quick question, and there are some people that I, I wanted to ask John, and he hung up, and then I think just folks online might have ideas about this. It'll just take a minute, if I could. Sure. Go ahead. Um, I was just curious. I mean, he spoke about immunization as being a trigger for deterioration, and you know, spoke a lot about you know vaccines for kids. And I was just curious if there were issues in terms of vaccinations as adults that might be issues. And also, I know that there was somebody on the line who sounded as though you know 9/11 was an issue for their child, and that issue. I happened to live in New York at, at the time of 9/11, and I also got sick at that time too. So I was just curious in particular um, while that person was you know potentially on the line. Um, Interesting. So, Kim, are you still on the line? Um, so she may not have been okay. so on, but you know, you know what I would do? I would actually um, post your post that comment on the forum mm-hmm. on the Mito Action website, and Kim emailed me her question, so I'll reply back to her and and tell her to look for that question on the forum, and 
I mean, very interesting, and definitely, you know, I, if I were you, I would want to compare stories and talk yeah. further. So, um, and in terms of adult vaccinations, you know, I don't hear about it as much because most adults don't get vaccinated, except for their tetanus shot, and you know, unless you have to go overseas or to nursing or medical school, you know. Is there something particular right, that you have in mind? There are things that you know that should be avoided, or. Um, yeah, it'll be interesting when like Dr. Wright, you know, hepatitis B, yeah. or if there are things that, you know, should stay away from. Um, not that I have heard of. Does anybody have any comments from that, from the autism community? I think it was um, definitely, I mean, you sort of answered it. You said you that there are a lot of um, adults who, you know, spiral into mito, you know, through all sorts of, you know, environmental impulse. And so, and I don't know, Holtzman used a different term, you know, there's, you know, vaccinations environmental so I would say yes, it's very reasonable. I mean, if our kids can spiral, why couldn't we? Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? And, and Christy basically answered that. Do you know what I mean? That all sorts of adults, you know, spiral into mito, you know, from all sorts of triggers. So It'll be interesting to ask these same vaccine questions, I think, and see if Dr. Dykes has any perspective on it as well when he talks in May. Um, you know. I have two so, comments. Uh, yep. This is Bob. Bob, you're still with us. Yeah, I was hoping you Well, I've been on and off, but I I couldn't stay away because it's such a great topic, and I appreciate it. Um, I've seen a couple of situations with older children, more than a couple, many situations with older children and adults who um, have adverse reactions, serious adverse reactions to vaccines, and later it's determined that they had mitochondrial uh, disease. I also... Uh, there's a situation with a 70-year-old boy, there's a 38-year-old man, uh, I mean, there's many of these. Then there's a, um, a circumstance where a child was diagnosed with mitochondrial disease at eight months old and had developmental delays, but nothing uh, super serious cognitively, nothing related to autism. At seven years old, she got a flu shot, and she would always get sick after vaccine. At seven years old, she got a flu shot, and shortly after that, within weeks, she developed autism symptoms, and eventually, within six months, was diagnosed with autism in addition to the mitochondrial disease. Uh, so those are circumstances, that, and I see similar types of things with adults and vaccine injuries. And the other comment I wanted to make, I think this is relevant to the discussion about toxins. I attended a lecture by Dr. Bruce Cohen, and I thought it was fantastic um, in general and very helpful. Um, and I asked him about that same question about the Weissman study on the Bauman and so on about the vaccines having a similar effect to infection. Um, he, and he was his co-author on the study. He completely disowned the study. He, it was almost as if he didn't want to have anything to do with it. He said, my name's on it, but he didn't subscribe to that particular um, idea. And he said it was sort of a product of a negotiation among the authors in the study, which I thought was very interesting. Uh, but what he did say uh, after that, um, another parent asked a question about toxins. And he immediately reacted very positively, saying, oh, yes, toxins, especially pesticides, can trigger mitochondrial regression. It's an interesting juxtaposition of distancing um, himself, and I, I, again, I, I think very highly of him, but he distanced himself from the vaccine issue, but embraced the toxin issue. And I also know that... Um, Robert Navio in San Diego has uh, quite often cited environmental toxins, including mercury, 
as being uh, precipitators of mitochondrial regression and disease. So uh, I think the idea that toxins uh, is, uh, can do this is very uh, is becoming much more readily accepted. I think it's easy to uh, there are toxins in vaccines, and uh, I think that we saw Dr. Holtzman, and I did appreciate his candor. No one wants to undermine the public health vaccine program, and so they're going to do everything they can to protect it until there's drop-dead evidence, <laughs> better, right? Uh, but the toxin issue, I think, is, is, is going to be much more readily accepted. And I, think right. it's, I think it is accepted that it will cause mitochondrial regression and disease. Right, for the um, larger good of public health. But I think it is important for us, you know, within the smaller community, to be discussing our, our experiences because obviously there's, you know, something real that has happened. The hard part about that is extra is extrapolating it out to what to tell the general public who doesn't have any symptoms yet, because I think that's where the um, the clinicians get concerned is that you know if there's a potential, for example, that there's there's a kid out there who's five years old who has an underlying propensity for mitochondrial disease and underlying propensity to develop some autistic symptoms and regression. Well, how many of those kids are there? We don't know. And so then the concern is if we start saying avoid vaccines, avoid this medication, avoid this, then every, if everybody did that, then we would have a big problem. On the other hand, gosh, how can you live with yourself knowing that you didn't, you didn't warn, right? Well, there's, there's, two, there's, two parts of, there's two big problems with that. First of all, um, many of the mitochondrial experts say uh, – promote vaccination, say, say children with mitochondrial disease should get vaccinated even more so than other children because they're prone to um, uh, injury from infection. And I know that, uh, for instance, a well-known uh, uh, doctor at Columbia Presbyterian has said just that in print many times. Um, but the, the other side to that, to go out and say there is no evidence is misleading unless you balance it. If you say we don't know, okay, I can accept that. But to say there's no evidence and then imply that vaccination is perfectly safe and further imply that there's been extensive testing of vaccines which show that it's safe, I think is fundamentally misleading. And that's where parents really have a, a, a problem of confidence in the public health uh, uh, and medical field in saying this. It, it's just not a supportable statement. The I don't know answer is supportable. They don't know. Okay. And we have to find out. But to, to categorically say it's been tested, it's safe, thimerosal's out of the vaccines, uh, we see that there's no uh, uh, decrease in autism, those things are not tested. There are no studies that say that. And that's where I really have a problem uh, uh, with what I hear from many medical professionals. I think they're saying it's to protect the vaccine program, uh, which is not a bad motive, but it, it's, it's fundamentally misleading. It's not just the vaccine program. I mean, science and medicine does that all the time. For example, if you look at just mitochondrial disease in general, the theory, it's a theory that you should vaccinate um, because your risk of the disease is so much higher. It's a theory that you should do that because it's a theory that the disease, in other words, I don't think there's any scientific evidence that's not anecdotal that shows that when you develop a disease, you deteriorate or you regress. 
I mean, if, I, I agree. if you, for example, get the flu um, and you regress, nobody has a problem with saying, oh, they were hospitalized because they got the flu. However, if you get a flu vaccine, you have some, for some reason, you have to have a higher level of scientific proof. But in either case, the only proof you have really is if you, you know, swab their nose and they have the flu. Um, so I'm not really sure that you're going to get very far until you start backing up and saying, well, for example, what evidence do you have that you do regress when you're exposed to a virus with mitochondrial disease? Let's take it from there and let's start looking at other environmental toxins in the same way. And I think that's where the problem is. You can't find a problem with vaccine damage until you know what you're looking for. And so when you look at encephalopathy again, what, what is encephalopathy? What is that? Um, it's defined in many ways, and most pediatricians couldn't tell you what they'd be looking for. They don't go to the vaccine table and say, let me take a look at this and see if there's an encephalopathy here. So we have to define what it is we're looking for before we're going to find it. And um, and I think that's a huge problem. Well, I don't think any of it's been done at all. And, but, but, but the way it's presented by public health officials and, and, and people in the medical field, that this work has been done. None of it's well, been done. It's because it's, unfortunately, I don't think it's deliberate, but I think that what happens is a lot of medicine is based on assumptions, and we forget that there are assumptions. We start out with them as something that's already been proven, when in fact it's never been proven. It's just been a, a long-standing assumption. And you right, something. Yeah, you have to go back. And I mean, that happens all the time in medicine, though. That's nothing new. It's, it's the same but thing it's new when there's a controversy of this magnitude and an assumption is presented as fact. Uh, and when you have a controversy with a debate and you have a major assumption that's presented as fact, which is used to undermine parental concerns, that's new. That, that is different uh, and in kind and, and in degree. So um, when you put it into this context, that problem becomes an enormous credibility problem. Well, then uh, maybe focusing on the fact that Instead of focusing on the fact that there's no science to back up, in other words, what science is there to prove that the vaccines work, first off? I mean, you can go back to that step if you want to get somewhere. You know, where's, you know, okay, it, there's fewer people that develop this disease when they get vaccinated, but where's the proof, the direct proof that vaccines help that person? You can't prove it. That's why we call it herd immunity because we're only looking at population studies. So it's the same in the other way. We're looking at population studies to show if we see an adverse reaction versus an individual study. But if you look at the individual, it would be too expensive. And that's why we don't. But that's what, but I mean, it's, seriously, if you look at each and every vaccine, we, we have never proven that a vaccine works for an individual. Oh, thank you for letting me ask that last question. Um, sorry. Sure. You're welcome. No, I mean, I've been done a lot. 
this is why we'll all dial again again next Tuesday, right? Right, and, and, and I'm not going to be part of it, so I appreciate you letting me ask my question. Absolutely, and, and, you know, feel free to join if, you, if you're so inclined. So um, so I am going to wrap us up, guys. Thank you so much for um, this enthusiastic response and for really sharing, I think, both your personal story as well as I'm very impressed by the degree of um, research and education and knowledge that you all have as a community as well. And I really look forward to collaborating and talking more about the topic. Um, if I can help in hooking you up with resources or coordinating or sharing ideas and so forth, the way to reach me is director at mitoaction.org. And um, in the meantime, for next Tuesday, I will, it's on the calendar, but just so you know, you'll use the same dial-in information that you used today. So, thank you so much, and um, look forward to talking with you next week. Thank you. Thanks, Chrissy. Okay. Thank you. Have a great day. Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye.